Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. All right, go ahead, Lizzie, start it. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Lizzie No, and this is Cindy House. Oh, man. So we are recording this on video right now as well, and I wish you could see the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now. Cindy, what are you the staff of? It's sort of like a members-only staff shirt. It's from a country music festival that my friends organized that we went to a couple weeks ago. It's called Blame My Roots. Blame My um, Roots. In Ohio. I really wanted a t-shirt and I didn't get to go to the merch tent because we were having too much fun. Um, and then my friend, the next morning, she texted me. She was like, which color t-shirt do you want? Because she had like Aww. staff t-shirts. Well, that's better. And I was like, obviously I want the hot pink one. Yeah. Wear that out hunting. And like crossing the street, like helping people cross the street. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about a couple things before we get into Beckham and Carrie. Let's do it. I do want to talk about a TV show that I, you and I are both like super into, and we started oh, talking about yeah. it the other day. And since then, I went to go rewatch it, and it <laughs> has like lit up my life. It's called Hacks. I received a really fun text last night with some screen grabs of some of your favorite looks from that episode. <laughs> Deborah Vance. Uh, Deborah Vance is a legendary comedian in Las Vegas, Nevada, and she's doing like a Las Vegas show. And then uh, her manager sends her this like snot faced 25 year old writer from LA. And it's like water and oil trying to mix together. It's a classic setup, and there's a great desert scene that is my favorite scene in the show. Um, I won't spoil anything, but. Oh, hacks. So good. Yeah, it's really good, and I'm really enjoying it on the second watch. It's on HBO Max. Gene Smart plays Deborah Vance, who is this, like, 70s-something mm-hmm. um, legendary comedian who has impeccable taste, my new fashion icon, honestly. Oh, good. A couple of podcast recommendations. Songcraft is an American songwriter yes. podcast, and we have been doing... A trade with each other, telling each other's listeners about our podcasts. Uh, we have an episode of Songcraft dropping in the feed. It is a podcast featuring two very smart guy buds um, who do their homework really, really solidly, much like we do here on Basic Folk. Um, the episode we're going to be dropping in a couple of days features Ani DeFranco. I love listening to Ani DeFranco talk. It is very similar to listening to her music. She's a genius. We can say that mm. on the show, right? We have the authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. The other one is one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, it's actually an offshoot of... So last time we were talking, Lizzie, we were talking about You're Wrong About. Oh, so good. On my last little Midwest run, my guitar player and I listened to the whole series on You're Wrong About Princess Diana. And like every few minutes, it was like a, they said what to her? They did what? Um, it filled mm-hmm. us with righteous rage. And it's so, I mean, so messy and fascinating and full of really great outfits. Now you have to go watch The Crown. I this. don't. You don't watch it? What? Here's the thing. Am I going to invest that much time in the royal family? I'm just not. I'm just not. Mm. I see your point, but it's also really good. You let me know when they get to Meghan Markle, and then I could be convinced. All right, so if you're not watching The Crown, what are you watching? Um, I have actually, unfortunately, been watching Are You the One, which is a reality show that like makes you stupider 
every moment that you watch. Um, <laughs> but it, there's some really interesting game theory in it. So I actually do recommend it. If you like reality TV that's trashy but hooks you, premise is this. Are you ready? 20 singles. They are prepared by matchmakers, but they don't know who their perfect match is. They have 10 weeks to figure out who their perfect match is. And if they get all 10 pairs right, they win a million dollars. All 20 of them. So after taxes, it's probably about 30 grand. And each week they kind of pair off and they have a ceremony where for each correct couple, a beam of light appears in the sky. How many tries do they get? 10 tries. Cindy, it's so embarrassing that your tastes are like edifying and beautiful. Actually, I do have a really good recommendation. Can I share a book recommendation? Obviously. Yes. This is my friend Elias Rodriguez's book, All the Water All I've the Seen. All the Water I've Seen is Running. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It's about kids growing up in Florida. A tragedy happens and they kind of come back to like make mm. sense of it. Beautiful book. Like as grownups? Mm-hmm. They come back, so it's like it. Uh, yes, is that like Stephen King? I haven't seen yeah. or read it. I've only seen the like movie when I was a terrified middle schooler. I got to get that book because I've been looking for um, a good fiction. It's, it's fiction, beautiful. Right? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thanks, Lizzie. Of course, uh, thank and then you. The, the other podcast episode that I wanted to talk about was Maintenance Phase, which is an offshoot of You're Wrong About, hearkening back to what we were, the Princess Diana um episodes but maintenance phase is a really great podcast that michael hobbs who is my um voice icon if i listen to him too much i start talking like him (laughs) but i love him so much and uh it's his michael hobbs and aubrey gordon and they debunk junk science uh behind wellness scams nonsense nutrition health fads one of the episodes they did recently was they were talking about the bmi oh my god it was like mind-blowing like finding out the history of the bmi and also that like one time in the 90s the bmi was like arbitrarily changed so if you were if you had a bmi of of 27 that meant that you were that was like the starting point for being overweight and then sometime in the 90s they just like backtracked it to 25 what the hell man for, for like no reason and it's like 40 pounds difference you know, but like depending on who you are and stuff, but <sighs> fascinating. People who are just listening on audio cannot see how hard I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah. Everyone do your best. Do your best. Yeah. Okay. Today on Basic Folk, we're talking to Becca Mancari. Lizzie had an interview with the wonderful Becca. Take it away. Okay. So if I had one thesis statement to say about Becca Mancari, it is that she does things her own way. She was raised in New York and Virginia and found herself living a nomadic lifestyle in her teens and 20s, which is when she kind of found her footing as both a songwriter and as an outspoken queer woman. So she ended up kind of renegotiating her relationship to spirituality and her relationship to gender. And this transformation is something that you hear in a lot of her music. Her amazing 2020 album, The Greatest Part, is a self-described coming out album that really invites people into this personal journey that she has been on. It's also a musical departure from some of her earlier work, uh, which was more indie folk influenced. The Greatest Part, which was produced with Paramore's Zach Farrow, is kind of a pop-influenced indie rock soundscape that has Nashville shaken in its boots, um, mm-hmm. but always stays true to Becca's intimate writing um, and her the feeling of being really close to her. And that's mm-hmm. that feeling kind of mm, becomes the focus so, of our conversation. So oh, yeah. And she, well, she's incredible. And like that feeling makes her fans stand apart because they like they have this relationship to her that transcends a lot of music fans like people describe Mm -hmm. going to her shows as this transcendent spiritual experience so -hmm. we talked a bit about that and we also talked about her 2021 ep juniata which is orchestral and nostalgic and dreamy and my favorite track from that ep is annie but then we got into everything from my pet topic the 
nitty-gritty, icky details of self-funding an independent album, to Becca's quarantine hobbies, including ditch digging, and her (laughs) friendships with very big deal musicians like Julian Baker and Brittany Howard. Um, Before we get into the conversation, I just wanted to share a word of caution that my interview with Becca touches on some difficult topics like religious trauma and homophobia, which I know can be really upsetting. So everyone just kind of use your best judgment and take a word to the wise. All right. Thanks for that, Lizzie. Uh, We are going to take a listen to a clip of Annie. I will say I've met Becca a couple of times Mm -hmm. and she is a magic person. She's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so pumped for everybody to hear this interview. Okay, let's take a listen to Annie, and then we'll get to our conversation with Becca Mancari and Lizzie No on Basic Folk. Welcome to Basic Folk. I am Lizzie No, and I am thrilled to be speaking with the phenomenal Becca Mankari today. Um, Becca, you are a forceful songwriter, a sonic adventurer, a storyteller, and a singular artist. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. So first things first, on social media, your pronouns are she, they. Do you prefer one or the other? I am fine with either. And, I, you know, it's kind of new for me, so... She is more familiar, so whatever you feel, it's great. Okay, great. Thank you. So picture yourself, let's get started. Picture yourself at age 10. What did you think you were going to be doing as a grown-up? And was music always the dream? Um, Music was always a dream since I was like three years old. So um, great. I definitely think that I was always playing music in my 10-year-old dreams as well. And then you spent a lot of your teens and 20s moving from place to place for people who aren't familiar with you. It's you were in Virginia, you were in Arizona, you were in India, you were everywhere in between. And how do you think that nomad period um, turns you into the songwriter that you are now? Yeah, I think it's really important to not be trapped in like a bubble, a homogenous kind of Nashville world. There's a big, 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 beautiful world outside of this bubble. And I think that made me, I think, more empathetic and hopefully more aware of my own um, need to grow always and learn from other cultures and other people and ask questions always before always having answers. So I think it's Mm. definitely um, been a big part of how I've grown up. Yeah, like you're you're a listener as much as you are a creator. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... You know, for me, sounds are the most important thing. Like, I'm not always just, um, I'm, a, I'm a writer, like, and I'm a singer, obviously, yeah. but I would, con- I hope to be a composer in my later life more than, yeah. I think, a writer. I think sounds are the things that move me the most. And so even just listening to the music in different parts of America, even regionally, like, I, right. I lived in Appalachia for a while, too, and there's a huge, you know, bluegrass community and string sounds that are really interesting, actually, when you, like, inject them into indie rock. You know, there's definitely... Oh, yeah. And even, like, in India, like, the Hindi music is just incredible. I love it. Like, it's really, like, um, rhythmic and, like, kind of um, this, like, trance kind of vibe, which I really Mm -hmm. feel and, like, relate to as a writer. Oh, yeah. I think those sounds show up already in your music. I would be excited to like hear a, a movie scored by Becca Mankari. That would be, well, let's manifest. <laughs> We're going to manifest that. I would love that. Yeah. 
Um, I want to talk about an interview that you did with Them Magazine, where you said where, when you were learning guitar and finding your voice as a kid, you didn't want to cover female artists because it kind of felt like this part of this burden of being pretty that your family and society were putting on you. And I'm curious what that's like for you now. Like, do you still struggle with being heard as feminine? And do you work through that discomfort? Has your relationship to prettiness changed in any way? Wow. Um, It's definitely something that has come up a lot, even recently in conversation, where even on The Greatest Part, my latest record, I still feel like I... You know, even the way I dressed at times, like there was still momentarily thought of like the male gaze and like what what does that look like? And even right. though I'm like pretty radically queer, you know, and I've really spent a lot of my life, all of my life being so, you know, you know, I went yeah. through a time where I definitely felt the pressure as we all do. I think as women or non-binary people or people of color, like we do feel a lot of pressure to be again like homogenous in America. Uh, be a certain way, a certain color, a certain look like, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, that is definitely something that I just want no part of anymore. And I am yeah. like, radically doing that work myself. Even it's like a deep work inside to rid yourself of those like social expectations. And I mean, even like white supremacy inside of us, of like course. it's a real thing and we have to like, work it out of us like it's a, an actual like act of changing so yeah I'm curious like do you find yourself becoming because you've worked with tons of you know other female artists non-binary artists do you feel like it's gotten easier as you've gotten older to like go between them you know the male and female influences and not feel so like you know fenced in by those expectations yeah, I one thing I was telling a friend the other day was really interesting. I said, you know, I'm this is the first time for this record I'm working on right now um, that I have written with other people. Um, interesting. Yeah, I know. I never like only thing I did with Zach was like he would write some of the music and then I would write all the lyrics and melodies and we did mm-hmm. two songs like that and it was really fun and it was the first time I ever even did that. But this is the first time I've ever actually like written with other writers. Writers. Yeah. And I, but it was a really, it was a huge challenge to answer your question. Like I really struggled with the fact that, um, people would ask me throughout my career, like, Oh, Hey, did you write those songs? And I was like, what do you mean? Like you would never ask a man, like, did he write those songs? He would just be like, those are great songs. And that happens all the time. Like even with people I've worked with before, you know, and so, yeah, there was a really big shift of like saying, no, I'm allowed. I should be able to do what everybody else does too, which is like write with other people or like collaborate right. in that way. But yet I did feel the pressure to literally do everything to be validated as an artist. Right. And I think women do feel that way. Uh, I think queer people feel that way. I think um, we are all like really working to be seen and like be celebrated fully And I think that's a struggle. No, I can totally relate to what you're saying. And I think, I mean, I go through things like that, like as a person of color in like folk and Americana, you end up kind of almost overcorrecting and being so protective of your craft in a way that others don't have to be. And you have to like prove prove yourself in a different way. I can totally relate to that. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, that's like the biggest thing, right? Like if you... And I even, I left the genre behind even like, you know, with this new record, like I definitely (laughs) said, I'm going to, I can't just be playing for people that are not like me anymore. Like I just can't do it. I don't want to do it anymore. And it was a choice. Like it was a radical shift for me. And it was because I wanted to, you know, live my life differently in every aspect. Wow. Yeah. That kind of leads me to my next question, which is, I mean, it's a little bit heavy and uh, it kind of comes back to that, um, that, that same interview with them. I was wondering if you could briefly set the scene for your religious upbringing growing up for those who may not be familiar, because I have a few questions about that as it relates to how you're living in the world now as an artist. Yeah. So my parents were both raised very Catholic. You know, my mom's Puerto Rican and my dad's Italian. Um, so it's like very like Catholic and background. Um, but they both became like what would you would call like 
born again evangelicals. Um, mm-hmm. so fundamentalists, like not even yeah. like affiliated with an actual denomination necessarily, which is um pretty intense because it's like it's veers onto I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than like they're Bible believers. So it's very much right. like fundamentalist. Like if it's in the Bible, we have to believe it with with a hundred percent certainty. There's no room for any kind of interpretation even other than like I guess their own at that at, at right. a certain point, you know. So I was raised kind of like interestingly though, because I was born in Staten Island and was like, you know, in the city. And then we moved when I was a kid to rural Pennsylvania. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Which was like a huge culture shock. I think for all of us, even like, you know, my mom, like coming into a grocery store and people staring at her being like, you don't look like you're around from around here. Or even like our friends from New York that helped us like move into our house. were like, hey, like we probably should not be around like this. This is not a safe place for us, you know? Have mercy. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, listen, I can go 20 minutes outside of Nashville right now in 2021 and not feel safe. Um, yeah. And I know that you know what I'm talking about, where you go yes. to places and you say, I'm not safe oh, yeah. here. Yeah. For multiple reasons. So that's like the the lock the doors uh, leg of the tour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the walk with a friend, the leg of the tour when I'm in like yeah. the Southeast. Yeah. I understand that. You said that you were raised with the belief to not, don't trust yourself. You're innately bad. Um, I'm so, I just want to say how thankful I am that you were able to put that into words because I've definitely struggled with that nagging feeling that like, I can't make decisions for myself. Like, I don't know whether it's okay to be a musician. What clothes should I wear? Like, and even like, am I sick? Can I trust my own instincts? So obviously, like for both journalistic and personal reasons, I want to know how you've gone about learning how to trust yourself. Like, have you turned to certain affirmations? Is it a fake it till you make it thing? Like, how have you practiced coming into your own instincts? Well, thank you for asking that. And also, I'm as somebody that can relate. I'm so sorry that that is how you've had you know, we have to do that deconstruction. And I feel like very much yeah, like you. I want to talk about it because I think there's a lot of us out there. Yes. Um, and I, I, a friend of mine sent me a TikTok of like somebody talking about being grown up, like how we did and just mm-hmm. saying like, you know, watching kids play so freely and not being afraid. And like her husband was saying like, isn't that great? Like so beautiful. And she's like, no, I don't remember that. Cause as a kid, I was always afraid of like, am I going to hell? Am I bad? Yeah. Can I, can I, um, please go to heaven? Can I please be okay? And it really does like wreck your identity. And like yeah. when I left the church, so I answer your question, when I left religion, um, okay. I, it was really, um, it's been a difficult process of like reclaiming right. my own belief though. Like, cause I still have belief. Um, Mm -hmm. and I still have faith actually. And that's like something that is like really personal to me. And I don't talk about very much at all. Um, and, and I don't even know people would even not get that in my music. And I think recently it's starting to come out of me, Mm -hmm. but, um, that's a really recent thing. That was not even on a good woman record. Like I didn't talk about that's hard. It's hard to come around to like, I don't want what I grew up with, but there is still something about faith and connection that matters to me, you know, that's really hard to come to. It is. And, you know, like, again, it's, a, <laughs> I was telling a friend, I was like, we should be billing the church for all of our therapy bills that we have oh, to like rack goodness. up. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been doing that. And my sister's a yoga instructor. She's an amazing person. She's kind of like a little really? bit. Yeah. She's like, she's really talked to me a lot about, I'm not a Buddhist either. Cause I'm never going to join like a religion, but like, I definitely relate to, I've been reading, you know, some books that have really helped me center and I'm just practicing presence. And that's really helped me like trust myself and hear my own voice, which like I was taught was the Holy Spirit, but I think it's just your actual, it's your gut, it's your own voice. Yeah, we actually each have our own instincts and intuition. And it's, I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way. To me, it feels radical to say like, I am okay. I know myself. I can make good choices, you know, (laughs) like, and to feel like that comes from within 
rather than an external set of rules is so wild. And you do, you do see like when people come into that, like they heal the world. Like that's my hope always. My hope is that Mm. from all this brokenness and like, you know, my music is like upbeat, but it's pretty sad. Like it's pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Like actually my team is like, can you write a happy song so we can like maybe get on like some like, you know, listings or whatever. I'm like, all right, I'll I'll do my best. Um, Maybe that's what co-writes are for. You could like hire out (laughs) the happy lyrics. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's definitely a process and it's, it's a long and maybe like for everyone, honestly, but that's being a person, right? Like, I think that's why we're here is to figure that out. Yeah. And thank God we all get to hear some of that process through your music. I want to talk about your first album. I heard that years ago, and that was that came out in twenty seventeen, right? I like that knocked me over. Um, Kitchen dancing is is such an amazing song, and I am really fascinated by basically how the sausage gets made when it comes to albums that are both musically excellent, but also like made without label support. Because I think I don't know if all of our listeners really know what goes on behind the scenes and how expensive it is, how emotionally draining it is, how um, time-consuming it is to independently produce a full-length album. So could you paint us a picture of, like, what was your life like then? Were you working a day job? Um, Did you and your band, like, camp out in the studio? Or were you, like, coming from work? Do you feel like being independent really, like, influenced how that album came together? Um, I love that question. And it's kind of crazy to think back on that time. It's so different than like the life I'm like really thankful. And I'm thankful for both. I think for me, I'm really glad that I didn't, I I have learned how to work. Like I know the business, you know, I understand the business because I didn't, I didn't have a team. Um, like you said, like it's a, it's, that's what happened. Like when I wrote that record, I was working a really like, you know, just, a terrible, not a terrible job, but it was kind of a terrible job. Just like flipping eggs, you know, like working the line, working the kitchen. Um, and I'd been doing that for years. Like I was a line cook for years. And so I was coming, like I was waking up at like 5am going to work, leaving like covered in like, you know, bacon and you know, all this stuff and going into the studio with my friend Kyle Ryan and like sitting there for like six hours just working and working and like falling asleep while working, you know, just yeah. like being so tired. And I think what I love about that record is I definitely would maybe have done things now differently, but at the time it was so fun because it was like very much my live band too, mm-hmm. who played on it. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't have the money to hire like studio musicians. I didn't have like, that whole thing. And I wanted it to be really collaborative and, you know, and I did pay out of pocket and that job is how I did it. Like, and I just had to scrape together money every time I could and be really honest. Mm -hmm. And I had to go and buy like food myself and make it for them so that I, you know, I couldn't afford catering. I couldn't afford like somebody to come in. Like I couldn't even afford delivery. Like I was like so poor, you know? (laughs) And so I just like, really like, I think, you know, too, it's like, if you have, the dream and you can, if you can like shed a spread of vision to somebody, if you can like inspire them by what you do, mm-hmm. they will come and help you. I really believe that. Like people want to, you know, be a part of something. And if you can like give them that vision, I think I'm really good at selling a vision basically. And I think that's, that's great. What I would say to young artists, I'm like, just sell the vision. People will come and find you. Uh, trust your gut. Uh, don't say yes to the first person who wants to work with you. Um, that is a big one. That's a tough lesson because a lot of people do want to like, once they see your train pulling out of the station, there are going to be some shady, shady people trying to get on board. <laughs> I didn't know we could say shitty, but yeah, there's a lot of shitty people yeah. um, out there <laughs> ready to like take your shine. And like, you know, one thing I've always realized is that people are unintentionally like, vampires like sucking your energy out of you yeah and you have to be wary of that and watch for it and I've definitely had that and I've learned a lot about you know sometimes you have to let people go even though it's Mm -hmm. scary and you have to take that chance but like I have done that and I have like built myself back up multiple times where the songs have been what I've just just write a good song write a good like pour everything into your art that's the thing that will 
that will always help you succeed. That's the main thing you should focus on. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because this is a lie that like self-doubt tells us. And it's also a lie that capitalism tells us that like you are a struggling songwriter. You don't have anything to offer. Like people are doing you a favor by working with you. And I think it's such an interesting shift when you get to that mindset of like, oh, I actually have something of worth here that deserves to be protected. Yeah. Do you remember when you kind of like when that clicked for you or have you always known like this is the path? I have something that nobody else has. I have definitely dealt with like self-doubt for sure. Mm-hmm. But I do think when I was first starting, I had a, I don't know if it was even an unhealthy sense of self, but I like, I like knew that I had something to say. Yeah. I knew it. And I, and I knew, I think I was just at a point where I realized I was like, either I'm going to do this. Cause I had spent a lot of years being in Nashville, just like learning and not right. really like saying a lot. And I didn't even tell people I played music um, I came here and I was overwhelmed by how I like, I remember the first time I started hearing people sing, I was like, oh, I'm not even a singer. Like, I don't even know why. Like, I cannot sing. Like, this is crazy. Like, this is insane how good people are. <laughs> and then I realized like, no, it's actually like, w- do what you do, be true to it. And people will find you. And like, that is powerful when you just be yourself. Like, that's over and over again, it comes back to, to that. People just want authenticity and they want to see what you have to say. Even if it's not like, I've never been able to belt. I've never been a big singer. I've always had this little like small voice. And you know, one of my best friends, probably one of the best singers on the planet earth right now. Right. And she always told me, she said, Becca, I can't do what you do though. Like there's an emotion that you have in your voice mm-hmm. that is yours and it's special. And that's why people listen to you and we need it. It's true. There's clarity in your delivery. That is definitely unique. Thank you. We should talk about the new music. And please stop me if you are sick of talking about like how musicians survived the pandemic. But it really does feel significant that this particular album was released in 2020. It's a really personal album from you. It is about surviving painful experiences. In some ways, it's about coming out and it does really seem like the type of album that is meant to be like shared as community. So in the absence of a tour, how did you celebrate the release of that album? And, and how do you think you're going to look back on it 20 years from now? Like what is that, that moment going to be in your memory? I think it's one of those things where we tried so hard in the moment to stay really positive and stay really present to the fact that we can't change what's happening. And you know, and I dealt with a lot of like, um, feelings of like, I've, and I, and I don't know if this is like even my Christian background or like, you know, this like higher purpose kind of thing where even the month that it came out, which is like now this is the month it came out in June of last year. And so like with the black lives matter movement, like I was mm-hmm. really hesitant to even like speak. Like I was like, I just right. don't want to take away from what's happening right now at all. Mm-hmm. And something we had a like really like work through I had to really work through is like the music still is important for people like the it was always about the people it was always about sharing this like story of struggle and like and I think you know no matter what like I just had to say okay I just offer this now to the people like this is my offering of like I hope this makes you feel seen I hope this might, you know, and I like do write music for queer people. No, I, I mean, straight people could listen to it. That's super like <laughs> dope if they do. But like, I do feel more and more like I make music for marginalized people. And like, right. I just do, I just can't do it anymore for the machine. Like, I just can't care at all. Like I just, so in that way, I'll look back and say, I was proud to say that I do think that it meant a lot to people who were at home struggling and like yeah. they felt really like heard and seen and I had lots of people reach out to me and I usually try to always respond to my fans and like really like you know okay like listen to them or say like you know you can get into my dms basically and I will respond yeah. to you. you know what I mean like I will like I'm like I'm really thankful for I don't feel like this like capitalistic like um divide like my shows are really inclusive uh I want you to yeah. feel like you're part of it I'm not like 
I never could be like the like the aloof uh, rock star. I've just never been no. like that. I've always been about how does this community help each other be stronger. I'm all about like power to the fucking people. Like I'm done yeah. with like the world against us. I'm just done. I can't do it anymore. And like so, I'll look back saying like it was the hard. It was really hard on me like emotionally to not have that be realized in front of people. But I just know that this record is special and I know that it will have its time. And I, mm-hmm. I already know that like, maybe it won't have the numbers that we wanted. Obviously like that's how this world works. And like, you know, I'm really thankful for a team that still wants to work with me and like believes in me and we're moving forward. So 20 years from now, right. I will be like, that was so hard and I didn't stop. And I actually like grew. Well, that's also, I mean, I I really wanted to talk about your live shows because I think this is like sort of becoming a well-known thing that you have a really deep connection with your audience and people really see you as someone that makes them feel less alone, someone that speaks to and for a particular community. And I wonder if you've always felt that intimacy with your fans or if it's something that has grown in strength as you've been more and more outspoken as like a queer artist and yeah basically like how has that relationship grown over time it's definitely grown I mean we literally had like a a cookout yesterday and a bunch of my friends were over and they've known me forever and like we were talking Mm -hmm. about that and they were saying like Becca like we're so proud of you like you really fought to be here you really fought yes and everything about this change it was a radical change like you know, like a friend, a new friend, like said, you know, I love the first record, but like, I see you on the second record. I see you stepping out and saying like, I am queer. I am not white. I am not like, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm mixed. So that's another thing. It's like, I struggle with like my identity in that way too, you know? So like, um, and like, we were just talking about how like, you know, that I think does take time. And like, I had to really like, um, leave behind this idea of like, I really want it to fit in when I moved to Nashville. Like I really wanted yeah. it to be like accepted. And I was just never like a lot of the women that I saw being celebrated. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, my whole thing is like, I believe that the artists, artists lift each other up. Uh, and that's the mentality I will always keep. And I will always support other women. But I do think like the time is now like to like truly claim who you are and my audience I think is feel safe to be who they are at my shows. And you know, what's crazy is that that. I think like there's still like fringe people from the Americana world that come and they say wild stuff. I mean, I had a, I was telling friends last night, um, uh, you know, we're all like a bunch of like, you know, it was just like the most beautiful table of, of people from different backgrounds, you know, Yeah. all of us like, know, like we, we probably should be living in New York. We probably should, we should be like, but we're trying to do something in the South. Like we're trying, you know? Yeah. So, and I feel like that, yeah, there's so much, there's so much love and connection and power to be found truly anywhere that you are and anywhere that you are with other people. And I don't really believe in this thing. Like the North is better or more progressive in any way. Like it is to some extent, but, but this is America. as they say. <laughs> like the whole country is like the lock your doors tour like you just people are wild all over the place yeah country is country I don't care where it is like you know like rural girl and like city is city like you know like yeah. this this country has like a real reckoning as we obviously know that's a we can talk about that another time too but oh, like, yeah that's definitely something that's like very much on our all of our minds all the time mm-hmm. and like making choices how we make our art too is really important mm-hmm. to me like it's you know, it's something that I've been striving to do. And so, yeah, like, I can't wait for, I can't wait to see my audience again because it's a radical shift. Like, there are my people now coming to my shows. Yes. And that is, oh, like... that's fantastic. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Okay, so you play a million instruments. You play drum machines in your, like, super group. Um, and, and then you produced the greatest part with Zach Farrow, who is best known as the drummer for Paramore. And you've said that you all played even more instruments on the album that you had no experience playing. So what was the most fun instrument to play? Is there anything that you're going to stick with after that album? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like 
this is a little bit weird that I'm going back to this instrument, but I played like some slide on this record and I really, I have this dream and I'm going to manifest this. I have this dream of being a lot like um, a lead singer playing lap steel, but not like normal lap steel. Like Mm -hmm. I used to have this incredible guy that I played with who, who would like basically run the lap steel, like a synth machine. Like he was, and he was like using all these pedals and like distorting the sound I've just never seen somebody do that in a live setting as a lead singer. Mm-hmm. And that is like my dream. I want to build this like kind of machine that incorporates slap steel yes. and like sin. And like, I don't know how it's going to work, but it's like a life goal of mine. true that you've only in the past few years started playing more electric and with like more pedals do you feel like that's something that's becoming more and more important and you know do you have like favorite guitars that you like to play favorite pedals like drop some drop some gear knowledge on our basic folk listeners okay so I definitely started playing electric for this new record and I played which is like to what was one of the coolest things is like we Zach and I both are not guitar players necessarily, like like shredders. Like I am a guitar player, right, right, right. But I didn't like r- like write lead lines on Good Woman. I wrote lead lines on various part. Like I was like, let me just okay, play. Now. Like, yeah, like I was like, let me just like play this part. And we both were doing that back and forth because it was like this whole thing until we really can't do anything. The whole concept was like Zach was like, let's just do as much as we can, just the two of us. Until we mm-hmm. really have to bring in, like, somebody who knows what they're doing. Like, and that's the kind of music that I respond to the most is, like, usually mm-hmm. um, most of the players that I play with are not, like, and there's nothing wrong with going to school. There's nothing wrong with Ber- Berkeley or, like, you know, I would, I mean, in a, another life, maybe I would have done that, yeah. but I just didn't. And so most of the people I surround myself are self-taught. Um, and there is something to a self-taught artist where my guitar player, he always says, Becca, he's like, yes, learn more and yes, grow, but never lose that very like naive way of making music because mm-hmm. you come up with things that I would never think to put together because they don't make sense together. They don't right. make sense <laughs> for that to actually be happening. Like it's not proper. It's not like the right way. And like that to me is the exciting thing about music. I still have so many questions about your album that I'm like going to force myself to get back on task. Um, So I want to talk about the music video for the first time, which is amazing. It's powerful. There are scenes of like you as a child and kind of coming to meet yourself as an adult. Um, The part that really stuck with me was when you were in that pink room and you were lying on the floor and you were surrounded by candles. It was sort of like a, a witchy moment. Can you talk about the motivation like the intentions behind it and and also like what did it feel like in the moment because I just feel so strongly that like how our bodies feel is like beyond logic so like lying on your back in a room full of candles even though it's part of your work it has to feel primal in some way so like what did that moment feel like when you were filming well it was very emotional like so the the scene is like to depict like the two people um in the room are my parents like like figurative parents oh really yeah like praying over me and there's like a pastor that's like holding his hand over me okay. and it, I, I like that you got that it felt like seance like this the yeah. a true story you know for me was when I came out um I went through a really bad breakup um uh-huh. with my first big love and I you know it was so bad that I felt like oh maybe they were right like maybe everything that okay. they said was true about being gay like maybe it will destroy me like maybe like this is like gonna like just ruin my life. And so I actually went back in the closet for two and a half years after I came out. Yeah. And that's actually when I'm, that's actually. I'm so sorry. Oh yeah. Thank you. I mean, I I haven't really talked about that a lot, actually. That's like something I don't usually talk about, but recently I've been feeling like it's important to tell the whole story for people who also go through coming out in in really uh, intense ways. Um, And so I actually went through an experience when I was in India, actually. Well, I went through this experience where, like, being gay was, like, basically, like, being, like, demonic, like, being, like, possessed. 
And I was literally, like, you know, forced to, like, go through um, deliverance or something. Like, you know, like, it was very intense. It was very intense. Yeah, it was awful. It was. laying on of hands type of thing. Yeah. It was, like, uh, laying on hands. um, Like, I threw up. Like, it was very, like, emotional. Like, you know, can I tell you this, though? It's going to make me emotional now. But, like, I remember. I'll never forget, like, when I was going through that. I remember, like, my voice, which I think Mm -hmm. is God. Um, my voice came to me and with all that chaos around me, which is like, you know, like the severe, like praying over you kind of thing. I remember being like, that voice said, it's not true. I'm with you and I love you. And you don't have to like, this is not real. Like, listen to me. I love you. Like I'm here and I'll never get over that. And that's why I still believe in God. Like I, I know that God is with me and all of that was like, really painful and like so the experience of being on that in that room uh even with like the um even I chose the man who um acted as the preacher as somebody that I he's like you know a white man and that was on purpose like those kind of people like are the people that were like I do think aggressively like tearing me apart you know and like for me though like my movement towards healing is even to forgive them and that's like why the music video I do like you see me hugging them you see me embracing people that I feel like really did kind of ruin me for a long time right um which I don't know if that's like something that everybody needs to do by the way like sometimes there are people that you just need to leave in the past and you need to leave it behind leave it behind and there are certain people that like my family that I, I want in my life, even though they mm-hmm. still don't accept me, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is painful. It's painful. It will never not be painful. But yeah. it is, like, I love the ending of that music video because it's, like, that's my family. Like, those queer people, those are my actual friends, you know? Those yes. are actual gay <laughs> queer people who are, like, my people, you know, and who have, like, been my chosen family. And, like, that was healing. It was even healing in that moment. Because you get to choose. You literally get to cast the characters of your adult life. You can choose who you want to include in that circle. And it's it's like, to me, the greatest joy of my life is being queer. So it's a blessing. Oh, the best. And you you talk a lot on the album about forgiveness. It seems like it's something that is important to you, but it's also tricky. What gifts do you feel like forgiveness has given you? I will say when I wrote the record, I realized that I did not, I was not able, I was not ready to forgive. And Mm -hmm. that's what's interesting. The last song is called Forgiveness, you know. um, Yeah. But it like, it still is like echoing like, you know, forgiveness is the hardest part when it's buried in your blood. Like I could not shake this feeling of like, I'm not ready yet. Like the whole record is, it's kind of angry. Like I, as I listen back, it's not like pointing fingers, but it's definitely like, it's not like glossing over it anymore. Which I think no. is really important. I finally realized, like, for a long time, I'd be like, oh, it's okay. Or, like, don't feel bad. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, a lot of people are like, no, it's horrible. Like, I can't believe you have to go through that. I, I don't understand. Like, how can parents not, like, accept their children for who they are? How can, like, they, like, you know, abandon them? How can the church, how can people do that? And I think for years, I just kind of said, it's okay. It's okay. And finally, I said, it's not okay. Like, it's not okay. Yeah. Anger can be a gift too. Oh, it is. It's a, it's a huge part of like, you know, in my therapy, like my therapist never like you should anger. There is a, like a real anger that is right, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think for me, I now I'm doing the, um, the actual like learning how to forgive after the record came out. Like I really felt like, Oh yeah. Like I was like, Oh yeah. I did not know about forgiveness at all. Like now I'm like in it. And I think, you know, not to get like too, you know, my mom is going through, she's diagnosed with cancer this year. And like, Oh God, yeah. I'm so sorry. Oh yeah. Thank you. I mean, you know, it's actually been like the craziest, like, I'm so sorry. This is like such a bummer interview. I feel. Oh no, not at all. I love to talk about feelings and I'm sometimes I'm like, is this wild to ask a person that I've never met in person? <laughs> but like, this is what, this is like what this music is for in, in my opinion. So I, I love to talk about like, the matters of the heart. <laughs> the real stuff, you know? And, like, you know, yeah. for me, when I found that out, you know, it was one of those things where I was, like, yeah, it hurts me to, like, 
put away a part of me when I come go home um, and deny like who I really am. And they, you know, but I love my mom and like, she loves me. And like, at the end of the day, she is somebody that I feel like was so, again, talking about like going back to the previous talk about um, white supremacy in America and like white right. like, colonialism, like, like colonizing people, like, my mom was colonized, you know, like Puerto Rico, yes. like Puerto Ricans are like, no, like nobody, like nobody cares about Puerto Ricans. Like they're just like who they have no. not, like, they're just like this country that's destroyed by colonialism. And I see that in my mom's life, you know, and her and her brothers right. and like my uncles and like my cousins. And like, you know, I'm just like, so for me, I'm like, my mom's mom died of breast cancer for sure. She died at 56. Nobody cared about her. She never spoke English. She didn't get the proper care. She probably maybe could have been here if she did. And like, my mom has it now, you know? And like, she knows that. And like, it's been really emotional. I was talking about it where she's like, my mom just didn't, I wish my mom could have had help. Like I finally was able to get help. And like, I feel like this is a story for a lot of women of color. Like they're not getting cared for. They're not getting the healthcare. It's just, it's, it makes me so upset. I think it's becoming trendy to talk about, you know, women of color not getting treated well in medical settings, institutional settings. But I think we can forget what that feels like on an individual level of like, my mom had so X fewer years of her life because of this. Um, It has such personal consequences. It does. And and it's like, it's trickled down. Like my mom... If my mom's mom could have found out, she could have been able to help my mom realize she's probably going to get it, you know? And now, like, now, like, my sisters and I can, like, all go get treated, like, go now because we know that it's in our family that we can go. But, like, her mom didn't get to do that for her, you know? It's just, like, generational. And you're right. It's not trendy. It's, it's like, it's happening to our families. Like, it is, like, (laughs) happening right now. And it's, like, it's still happening. So, to me, I talk about it because it's really is something that I'm realizing, like, you know, at least for my mom, I think it's a little bit harder for me with my dad at times, mm-hmm. even though I see him really trying. Um, he still has like this perspective that I, it's very like, you know, he's a 65 year old white man. Like, you know, like he's an Italian man, like old school. Like that's like, it's just the truth of it, you know? And yet, like, I still feel like I really want and I go skip back to the music. Like, I just want my music to, like, reach whoever. Like, I need it to reach people because I do believe, like, if it doesn't change my life, like, let's say, like, my parents will never accept me. Maybe first time, the song, the meaning, the, like, all of it, maybe it will help somebody else's family accept Somebody them. else. Yeah. Maybe one other parent will hear it and be like, why would I not hug my child? How, like, it will right. snap them into it. Like, snap out of it. Like, don't you see what you're losing out on? This is yeah. This is what this is what this disconnect can do. Yeah. Well, I that kind of leads me to your to your new EP because there are so many moments on the greatest part where it really does feel like you're confronting or reenacting your childhood in a way that's kind of painful. And then Annie, the new song on the Juniata EP, is so dreamy and so like peaceful and sort of nostalgic. Um, and I'm sure you could come up with better descriptors, but was there something else about your childhood that you were trying to capture on Annie? Was there something about memory you were trying to um, shift the focus on? Yeah, I mean, so like I said, like my um, my grandpa is still alive. He's 91 years old. And, um, oh my God. Yeah, so he's like an OG. Like he's the best. Uh, and he's like extremely Italian. Like he's like his family's from Italy, you know. And, yes. Um, he's just like, so, um, I don't know. Like, I think if you're raised like on the East coast, like, especially like, uh, the music I grew up listening to and like Mm -hmm. the movies that I watched, like, um, because I was raised so religious too, like I grew up on like 1950s movies that my grandma would record for us and send to us. (laughs) So I know like more about actors from like that time period and music, music and music from that time period than I do from like, you know the nineties at times, like, and like, and like, it's crazy to say, but like, I, I definitely did from like school and like listening and I'd sneak a radio in, like listen to like R and B. I think I wanted to like pay some homage to like 
my grandparents and I was really close to my grandma who passed away. And so I just wanted to like make this music that my grandpa would like be proud of, I think like, like that he would feel like was like really classic and like, you know, artist, the artistry is so like incredible to me that the, the Jordan Leahy who composed the strings just did a magical job. And so, yeah, like it's definitely um, was reflective of my childhood and being grown up on the Northeast and Italian, you know, extremely emotional and like very like gaudy and like, I just think it's really cool. Yeah. I have one more question. So you and Julian Baker have a very adorable friendship. And it also seems like you guys have some important things in common in terms of upbringing and, you know, your journey to like the sort of self-possessed people that you are today. So what has that friendship meant for you? Um, It's really funny because the first time that um, we met was on tour. We had just like, um, she had reached out to me on Twitter uh, like DM'd me on Twitter and was like, um, slid into the DMs DMs, and she was like, Hey, like, um, they'd offered us this tour to open up for her in Mm -hmm. Europe. And she was just like, Hey, like, I'm really excited to have you. Um, I would love to like have coffee and like get to know each other. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're so excited to be doing this. And we didn't end up getting that coffee because life is so busy at the time. Right. And, um, she'll tell you the story too so I'm not like like blowing her spot but I will tell you that I always say this is not gotcha journalism no exactly this is not like you know um she she and I were in Germany and I think it was like maybe like a couple shows in of the tour Mm -hmm. and I probably had at the time too much wine let's be true uh but I went up to her and she was like we were talking and I just said something like, I don't know if I dig your music. Oh, yeah. You did not. Oh, yeah. And she said from that time on, we became, because I, and I talked to her about what I meant. I said, I read an interview that you did and it upset me because not everybody gets to have the story that you had, Julian. And queer people need to not feel like they are crazy to say the church has literally destroyed them. The church right. has destroyed queer people. The like that that happens. Like I'm talking like queer people we what 31 years ago we were just like said to not have by the World Health Association to having like a mental illness. Illness. These are people that are still alive that are around watching us young gay people reap the benefits of all of their literal like putting their bodies on the line. Yep. And I just was upset. And I just said, you know, I don't know if I dig that, man. And she looked at me and she said, I like, okay, like, let's like, I like you. Like, you're not, you're not blunt smoke on my ass. You're not on this tour pretending. You're not like telling me something that like you don't believe. And we became brothers. Like we became like so close because I told the truth. And like, you know, we, and she's grown so many different ways that like, that's, you know, her story to tell. But um, I couldn't be proud of her, of her, I'm more proud of her. I love her. Like, we're like, truly like family now. Like, it's just like, she's very special. And she's, she always was, by the way, like she all, her music is incredible. And it did bring me to tears multiple times on the tour, but it was from a different, she's grown a lot. Like, listen, like when you listen to the new record, that record, I'm like, oh yeah, I see you, Julian. Let's go. Oh, that's so exciting. Um, Are you down for a lightning round before I let you go? Let's do it. Okay, so here's the rules. You may skip any question, but don't ask me to clarify any questions, and this will be timed. Okay. Okay. Okay, what's your karaoke song? Pass. What is your favorite music venue to play? Basement East. Nike or Adidas? Adidas. What's your favorite pasta shape? Long, skinny. Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia? Oh, neither. Okay. CD, LP, or cassette? LP. What is the one snack you need to have in stock on the tour van? Uh, just mango strips. Ooh, very good. Okay, speaking of snacks, who is your celebrity crush? Ricky Martin. Which musician, living or dead, do you believe could unite the country if they were elected president? Brittany Howard. Brittany Howard. 
do you know how to change a tire? Kind of. Becca Mankari, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for talking with me. Um, thanks to the whole Basic Folk audience, I have been Lizzie No. Today's episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. Thanks again to Lizzie for interviewing Becca Mancari. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all the episodes of Basic Folk, including Lizzie's two other episodes that we've released so far, featuring interviews with Amethyst Kia and Kishibashi. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at basicfolk.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.